A reading from the book of 2 Kings chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? What does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to, to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. The word of the Lord. From the book of Galatians chapter six, starting with verse seven. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. I may never boast except in the cross of Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? A reading from the gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, starting with verse 1. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you like lamb among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 turned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. Hope you're well. Hope you've had a good weekend, a good restful weekend. Some of us time with family. I know we have a lot of people out still with family this weekend and traveling all over the world, Um, literally all over the world. I heard from Tyler and Sarah this week. They are in Havana, Cuba now, which is very exciting. So, um, but today our texts that we've read here, they, they lead us to this idea of humility. And humility is this word that when I sat down and I wrote about it and I thought about it as a theme, I thought humility, it it sounds like such a boring sermon like concept, right? (laughs) Like it doesn't sound epic enough. I like epic sermons, right? Like talking about humility, like what's happening here? But, But if you think about it, this is really where Christian discipleship starts. What it hinges upon is our humility, our willingness to let go of ourselves, coming to the end of ourselves, realizing I need more than just my inner self. I need more than just my human potential. I need more than just the tools I have in my toolkit, right? I need more than me against the world. But the life of a disciple is one of realizing on my own, I'm weak. So I think I get it when Paul says, I rejoice in my weaknesses, for in my weaknesses, he is made strong. That we rejoice in the fact that I am weak. (laughs) I, I, on my own, am limited. And yet there is a God who's greater, right? Who lives in me. Christianity doesn't promise to tap into our inner potential. That's not the goal of Christianity. The goal of Christianity is not helping us win every day, right? That's not the goal of Christianity. The Christian life is about coming to the end of ourselves, 
taking on a new kind of life, living by a new reality. Now, this is something that we do once in baptism, when we go under the waters of baptism, that we let go of ourselves. And yet it's also something that we do every day as we seek to live into that baptismal identity. Many people who come to faith or come back to faith do so in the midst of a crisis of some sort. Most people that I've met, it's when they first kind of step back into faith, the faith they grew up in, or they come to faith for the first time, it's like, I got to the end of my rope. Didn't know what else to do. I didn't have anything else in my toolkit to use other than to trust something else. Our stories today speak about that humility, about laying our life down. That Old Testament story that we read follows the plight of a man named Naaman, and he was a commander in the Syrian army. And our text is really careful to tell us that he served in this really high status, even though he had leprosy. And leprosy at this time isn't the modern medical condition where actually um, kind of limbs fall off and all those kind of things. It was just a really severe skin condition. And in the Jewish faith, and according to the people of God, they believed that at that time, that if someone had leprosy, it was a sign of a curse. So they would separate themselves from the person with leprosy. So this shows you, even though this guy wasn't a, um, a, a member of Israel, he still would have been seen through the eyes of Israel as someone who had been cursed, someone who is far away. In fact, when somebody had leprosy in Israel, they were cut off from community, separated from community, not able to worship in the temple or even be part of the society because they were seen as cursed. This is fascinating on multiple levels because it shows us the Bible is always messing with us. If you, if you ever just read the Bible through and you go, yeah, that makes sense. I feel good about that. You're probably not reading it the right way. <laughs> the Bible is supposed to nudge us, mess with us, shake us up and challenge us. And that's what this story does. Um, When Naaman's army had gone through Israel, they had taken prisoners of war. And one of them was this servant girl who served Naaman's wife. And she knew about this prophet. So she knows about her master's illness, his leprosy. And then she knows about this prophet in Israel. And so she wishes and she says to the one that she's serving, Naaman's wife, I wish that my master just knew about this prophet so he could be healed from his leprosy. Notice the chain of news here. Naaman's wife, we don't get this sense that the servant girl tells him directly. She tells his wife, who then maybe we assume tells him. And then he goes to his king to ask for a letter to go to Israel. And then he goes to Israel's king who tells Elisha or Elisha hears from him. And then Elisha doesn't even go and see him face to face. So you've got these layers, all this red tape, all this bureaucracy connecting this guy Naaman with the prophet Elisha. And for a successful military commander, you can see how this would be frustrating. I'm used to getting my way. I'm used to, if I need something, I can find the right person and they can take care of me. You've got all of this red tape. So he takes this advice from the servant girl. He goes to the king, then to the other king, and then Elisha refuses even to see him. In fact, it says Naaman goes to the king of Israel and he brings all this gold and all of these garments and he basically asks if Elisha can heal him. The king of Israel acknowledges his own weakness at first. He says he tears his clothes, which was a sign of repentance. And he's like, well, who am I, God, to say that you could, I could heal you or that you could be healed? So he's acknowledging there's something outside of himself that would be um, healing him. And then also he thinks there's a diplomatic fight going on. 
or that Naaman's trying to manipulate him or the king of Aram is trying to manipulate him. But Elisha hears that the king tore his clothes. And I think in our, to our modern ears, this is so funny. Elisha hears that the king tore his clothes. And then he says, basically, man, why did you tear your clothes? Like, don't do that anymore, right? Um, send him on to me so that he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. So it says that Naaman came to Elisha's house and he came with horses and chariots. So again, he's a military general, lots of accomplishments. He's used to getting what he wants by showing strength. He comes with his chariots and his horses and all this gold and all this stuff. And perhaps he thinks, when this prophet knows who I am, when he knows my strength as a military commander, when he knows all the stuff I've accumulated and all that I have, my status, he'll be so impressed with me, we can cut through this red tape and he'll heal me. Ashley and I have been going back and binge-watching episodes of Frasier. (laughs) For those of you born after 1993, that was a show about a radio psychiatrist, all right? Frasier was really particular, and he's very snobby in the show, and he and his brother Niles are always trying to get into the French restaurant La Cigar Volant. (laughs) They say it just like that. When the attendant would say, when he would call and he would ask for a reservation and the attendant would say they were full, Fraser would respond with, are you sure that you do not have a table for Dr. Fraser Crane? Okay, emphasizing his status and who he is. Now, of course, a part of the show and the nature of the show is Fraser's exterior always masked a deep insecurity, <laughs> that he's hiding this insecurity about who he is. Naaman has some of this going on, okay? I imagine that the horses and the chariots mask this deeper insecurity because of the leprosy that no matter how hard he tries, no matter how high in the military he climbs, he can't get rid of that thing. The only way I know how to be clean is to use what I have. I can use my power. I can use my achievements. I can use my strength or what I've accumulated in life. So imagine what a blow it is to Naaman's ego to hear that Elijah sends a messenger He doesn't even come to him directly. He didn't even come out to see him himself. You show up at a guy's house with horses and chariots and he sends a messenger? And on top of that, the messenger tells him to do something ridiculously simple. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. In other words, you have leprosy. Um, Why don't you try, have you tried taking a bath? Go take a bath first. How insulting. Naaman says that I thought for sure he would come out himself and he would wave his hand Harry Potter style and he would heal me. And then he even says, if I, if I was going to bathe in the water, I could have stayed home. The water is way better in my home country than it is here, right? His servants then try to calm him down, asking master, if it was something hard, like if he told you to, um, if you could be healed by climbing a special mountain to find a special herb or something, or you did this exercise regimen, you would do that, wouldn't you? How much more should you do something simple like this that he commands you to do? We have in this passage an image of a man who is forced to lay down his ego. Despite being a military hero with so many accomplishments, he still couldn't bring about his own healing, his own salvation. He's weak. He went through an embarrassing amount of red tape and the prophet wouldn't even see him based on his accomplishments. Having lost all power and all status, he's forced into simple surrender. 
And what happens? He goes through a type of baptism, a surrender, a washing clean. And it says that when he came out of the water, his skin was like that of a young boy. I think about the words of Jesus when he speaks of the kingdom of God coming through the little children, right? That it's only when we get to that place of a young child, that humble surrender, that lack of trust in our own accomplishments or wisdom or what we've done, that healing and salvation happens. How many times must we all learn that our status and our power and our fame won't save us? We can never make enough money, can never get enough likes on social media. We can never achieve enough accomplishments to save ourselves. The baptismal waters call to us. We have a new identity. And I wonder if like Naaman, we go back to the old tools that we have in our toolbox instead of trusting in Christ. Our first instinct when we reach resistance in our life is to go back, how can I manipulate this for my good? (laughs) How can I, through my own achievements and my own status, how can I make this right? And when it doesn't work, insecurity kicks in. That thing we've been masking kicks in. This is all happening because I'm just not good enough. People don't like me enough. I need to fix myself. I can do that. Naaman was chasing healing and cleanliness, which is also a metaphor throughout the Old Testament for salvation. In fact, for Israel, the healing of leprosy was salvation because if a person had leprosy, they were cut off from the temple and cut off from the community of God. So to be healed of leprosy is to be restored into that community, to be brought back close to God's presence. Now, many of us are chasing things in life that are not nearly as important as what Naaman was chasing. But that's the problem. We're chasing security, approval, money, fame, and we've convinced ourselves that those things are our salvation. And they're not. Like Naaman, we're called to simple surrender, surrender to our new identity. I wanna work in a couple of these other passages that we talked here. What What do these other passages have to do with this idea of humility? Well, last week we talked about Paul's audience in the letter to the Galatians. And there's this group of Jewish Christians in these house churches in uh, Galatia who are going around and telling people if they really want to be a Christian, simple faith is not enough. They have to become culturally Jewish, okay? So you can have simple faith, that's wonderful, you can become a Christian, but you also need to take on circumcision and Sabbath laws and all these ways that we eat and all this kind of stuff in order to really be a Christian. And Paul's saying, no, that's ridiculous. None of that is necessary. Let that go. In fact, Paul says, you reap what you sow. So if you trust in your own achievements, if you trust in your cultural milieu or these cultural festivals that you observe, you're gonna reap where that leads. And Christ has shown us that those things lead to emptiness. They're empty. But yielding to the Spirit leads to eternal life. Now, that word eternal is often mistranslated. It's it's not necessarily speaking to the length of life, enduring forever, even though that's true. But it's about a life that's altogether different. Eternal life is a life that's completely different than the life that we had before. In Christ, it's resurrection life. It's life led by the Spirit. And Paul has kind of a fun way of emphasizing this. He, he wants them to know that this part of the letter, he's writing himself. So 
If you get this picture in your mind, like most of the time Paul dictates his letters, we think. So he's speaking to somebody else and somebody else is writing. And then he says at one point, he says in this letter, he says, see these large letters I'm writing with my own hand, okay? I want you to know this is so important to me. I have sent the the dictation away and I'm writing this myself and I'm writing it in big letters for you to see. What is he saying that's important? He says, these Judaizers, this group of people who are trying to tell you you have to become culturally Jewish, are trying to compel you to be circumcised so they can boast in their cultural identity. They want to say they've added you to the right group, that you've jumped through the right hoops. But Paul says, may, may I never boast about anything except the cross of Christ. I boast in weakness, that I'm under the cross of Christ. It's not anything that I've done. It's not something I've earned, but it's something Christ has done for me. And because of that, I'm part of a new family. And Paul says that when I do this, when I live this way, the world will mock me. But the world's opinion doesn't matter. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything, he says. But a new creation is everything. Our cultural badges of status are not anything. The new creation that has come about in Christ is everything. So we talked about humility in the first passage, and this idea of laying down our life, um, of what it means to be humble before God. This passage is also about humility, but it's about humility with each other, that we all carry these cultural badges that say, I'm part of the in-group and you're part of the out-group. I've got this figured out because where I'm at culturally or where I, what I've achieved and you're part of the out-group. This is more of a horizontal humility. Who are we next to others? We live in a world that is so polarized right now, don't we? Um, Seems like every generation has said that, you know, so it's not anything new that we're saying that it's polarized. But I do think I'm not alone in saying it's unique right now, that it feels like we're unable to even really use the same language or have the same conversation with people who seem to be in other cultural groups from us. Everything is a culture war, and it's exacerbated by social media, isn't it? But in the midst of all of this, the church has always been called to be something different, to stand out as something different, to not give in to the culture wars, but to stand as a new society and a new people. Scott McKnight calls this a fellowship of difference, not difference, E-N-C-E, E-N-T-S. We are different. We are different people, Right? We're like, Scott McKnight talks about it as a salad that's been tossed together. (laughs) That we're not the same, but we're together, right? You don't want a salad that's all just one thing. If you were given a salad and it was only romaine lettuce, it's not a salad, it's lettuce, right? But a salad is all these things that are different that are tossed together in the same thing. That's who the church is called to be. We're not the same, but we're brought together for a purpose, In fact, a recent study by a British scholar has concluded that if the Apostle Paul's house churches were composed, we believe at this time, of about 30 people per house church. And this would have been their approximate makeup, okay? So these 30 people would have been made up of a craft worker who was like the host of the home there, all right? Um, Along with his wife and children and a couple male slaves, Okay, so that was the first group. A female domestic slave, and then also a dependent relative. Okay, so that would have been the first group that was there. Secondly, some tenants with families and slaves and dependents. 
also living in the same house in rented rooms, some family members of a household who himself did not participate in the house church, right? So people from another house that had all come together. Then a couple of slave, slaves whose owners did not attend, some freed slaves who did not participate in the church, a couple of homeless people, a few migrant workers renting small rooms in a home, add to this some Jewish folks and perhaps an enslaved prostitute. And that was the makeup of the early house church. That's a diverse group, right? Coming from all different backgrounds and they're trying to have practical conversations about we would never hang out together at all if it weren't for the church. And yet we're here together, so how do we have a meal together? Because the Jewish folks can't eat certain things and the Gentile folks can't eat certain things. And this person has to report to their master and this person has a slave, but it's awkward because the gospel seems to be compelling us to release the slave. So, so what is going on here, right? I think that's such a beautiful picture of the church, of this group of people not bound together by affinity or by culture or by achievements, but bound together by the grace of God. Unfortunately, I think the church today is not immune to the cultural polarization. Seems like even every church that you go to, you have to kind of determine which side of the culture war are they on, right? That's never been what the church has been created to be. We've always been called to go beyond, to push past that. And if this text says anything to us today, it challenges us not to define ourselves by our political or cultural identities. The text challenges fundamentalism, and the, te the text also challenges liberal fundamentalism, both which say that if you are not a certain way culturally, you don't embrace the right buzzwords, you are not part of the family. The church is beyond all of that, guys. Paraphrasing Paul, that's hogwash, right? The only thing that we boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. And then finally, in our gospel text, Jesus has sent out 72 of his followers in pairs, village to village, proclaiming the news about himself. This passage has this strong sense of urgency. Jesus will not pass this way again. So the time to repent for all these villagers is now. And he says, the harvest is plentiful. That means there's a lot of work to do. But the laborers are few, which means don't delay, do this quickly. It means they must look to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. That it is God who will bring about this harvest. It is God who will bring people into the family of faith. Notice that they are doing this work by going house to house, but they're not the ones who bring in the harvest. It is God himself. And their task will not be easy, Jesus says. There's this image of lambs in the midst of wolves, and that's a scary one. They're helpless. The 70 are also told not to bring any equipment with them. So don't take a purse like a money bag. Don't take a traveler's bag. Um, don't carry any sandals with you. Don't take an extra pair of shoes. So they're empty handed. They're dependent on God. And then it says, salute to no one on the road. What does that mean? Like, does that mean don't say hi to people? Like say hi as you walk along the road? Well, no, like in Eastern culture, salutes, like greeting someone on the road was this long drawn out process where you would stop and you would exchange this greeting and it would take forever and you'd share hospitality with each other. Jesus is saying, we don't have time for all that. Just move past, right? Keep going. I had to think about, you guys know that um, Ugly Mugs is my favorite coffee shop. I go there quite a bit. But if I really need to get work done, I can't go to Ugly Mugs because I know too many people in there. So many, many times Ashley will say, well, hey, when you go to Ugly Mugs this morning, will you just run me back? Because we live close. Will you run me back a cup of coffee? 
So I'll go there and I'll get her coffee and then 45 an hour, 45 minutes, an hour later, she texts me and she goes, hey, are you gonna bring me that coffee? And I'm like, oh, I got to talking to such and such and such and such. So I need to know, like, don't salute anyone on the road to ugly mugs, right? Like, like, keep moving, keep going. There's stuff that we need to do. They're called to proclaim peace. That's the heart of this calling. So the messengers were to say, Jesus says, say peace to this house wherever they went. And they're looking for a child of peace or a man of peace. Why is that such a big deal? Why greet with peace be with you? I don't know about you, but that wasn't the method of door-to-door evangelism I did as a kid. It wasn't go to the door and go, hey, we just want to let you know, peace be with you, right? No, we wanted a decision, didn't we? Like we, we wanted to know that they had chosen something and then we could check them on our pad or what, whatever it was, right? So like, what, what's going on with this peace be with you? Well, most of Jesus's contemporaries didn't want peace. They didn't want peace with their traditional enemies. Samaritans didn't want peace with Jews. Jews didn't want peace with Samaritans. That's why the good Samaritan story is so shocking. And they didn't want peace with Romans. They wanted to overthrow the empire. They wanted to turn it upside down. They wanted to, through political strength and military might, to conquer their enemies. But the way of violence against our enemy is the way of slavery. It is taking liberation that is God's only. It is taking that liberation into our own hands. God is the one who sets us free. Jesus's message is about surrendering It's about humility. It's about recognizing that trusting in our military strength and our achievements and what we do will always lead to emptiness. There's something greater. N.T. Wright says of Jesus's commissioning, it grew directly out of his knowledge and love of Israel's God as the God of generous grace and astonishing, powerful, healing love. This was the God whose life-giving power flowed through him to heal. This was the God to whose kingdom he was committed. And then also some practical things, he says. The 70 are to stay in one house in each town, okay? Don't bounce around from Airbnb to Airbnb. Like, just go to one and stay there the whole time that you're there because they're to focus on work. And they're also not to party or be entertained long after they've done their work. Also, they're allowed to receive meals for free from people, okay? Um, He says the worker deserves his wages, Also, the preachers are to freely receive hospitality, eating what's put in front of them. Why is that important? Well, in other words, the disciples weren't to worry about ceremonial food laws. Don't worry about eating the right stuff. Whatever's put in front of you, just go ahead and eat it and receive that hospitality. You are here to preach the kingdom of God and the fact that it's come near to you. And then it says something that's chilling. If a town does not receive you, go into the streets with your message and do two things. Wipe the dust off, your, off their feet against them. That was a symbolic act telling the citizens, you have placed yourselves outside the people of God. Second, they're to tell them that their rejection of the kingdom of God doesn't change the reality that the kingdom of God has come near, okay? This is so critical. When we preach a better way, when we live a better way, there is always, always, always a cynical response. You guys are part of, you guys are church planters. You guys have been part of planting a church. You know that when we do that, there is always cynical response. (laughs) Anytime you talk about your faith in the world, 
Some are open, there are people of peace, but if we talk about it long enough, there's always gonna be cynical response. There are gonna be those who come along and just say, well, all that's fine, but I'm just here to tell you like it is, right? Sure, you can have faith, but really the goal of life is this thing. You ought to be here in your career by now. You ought to be this successful. You ought to have this identity. That's what life is all about. Sure, you're to live peace, but there are certain people who are just so bad, they're pretty much the worst ever. The only thing they're gonna ever respond to is anger and violence. That's what we hear from our cynical voices. Sometimes our cultural discourse gets so bad, we actually dehumanize other people. Can you believe that? I think you've probably experienced that, right? That we treat people as objects to be rejected as opposed to human beings created in the image of God. That's what Jews and Samaritans often wanted to do to each other. And also they believed that the Romans were so awful, they aren't even worthy of our love or our attempts at love. I hope that when we hear those cynical responses, we will be able to reject them as narratives of the enemy. That a posture of humility under the cross protects us from that. And yet we have the reality of judgment in this passage. That's something we don't talk about all that often in our world. We don't like to talk about judgment, but the message of peace is also always a message of woe. Peace and woe go together. It's this question of who will you trust in? If peace has come, are you going to trust in that peace or are you gonna trust in something else? The messengers came with a word of warning and a word of invitation. To refuse this message is to refuse God himself. And what that would mean is throwing themselves into the hands of a pagan power. That if you're gonna trust in military strength, if you're gonna live by the sword, then you're going to die by the sword. If you're going to try to conquer Rome and overthrow Rome, you're gonna get where that leads and you're probably going to perish at the end of that. That's why this was so urgent. Israel was so close to flying into ruin by seeking revolution against Rome, and this is their last chance. I think that's really what judgment is about in Scripture. The reason why Jesus seems so harsh at times is that he knows when we trust in false things, when we trust in idols, we will get wherever those things lead. If they lead to emptiness and they lead to destruction, that's where they're headed. So Jesus, like a parent, when their child runs out in the street and says, get out of the street, get out of the street to get their attention, he's saying these harsh words in order to go, I know where that leads and it's dangerous. Woe is not a call for vengeance. It's not a, I'm gonna get you because you've been bad. Woe is an expression of regret. Jesus has done great work in these cities and yet they've rejected him. There's this really interesting idea that was presented by Isaac the Syrian, a seventh century Eastern theologian. Now, his ideas are on the fringe. So what I'm gonna ask is a little grace this morning. Don't burn me at the stake if you don't like what this says. I'm not saying he's right. I'm saying that he's got an interesting idea, okay? But he speculated that heaven and hell could actually be the same place that we experiencing, experience that place differently depending on whether or not we trust in God's love. It is God's love that is fully and completely done in heaven, right? 
And God's love, if we have bent ourselves or turn ourselves against that love, God's love feels like torment. Isaac the Syrian says this, I also maintain that those who are punished in Gehenna or hell are scourged by the scourge of love. For what is so bitter and vehement as the punish, punishment of love? I mean that those who have become conscious that they've sinned against love suffer greater torment from this than from any fear of punishment. For the sorrow caused in the heart by sin against love is sharper than any torment can be. I would be improper, it would be improper, for a man to think that sinners in hell or Gehenna are deprived of the love of God. The power of love works in two ways. It torments those who have played the fool, even as happens here when a friend suffers from a friend. But it becomes a source of joy for those who have observed its duties. Thus I say that this is the torment of Gehenna, bitter regret, but love inebriates the souls of the sons of heaven by its delectability. For Isaac, God's love doesn't stop at the gates of hell. God's love never stops. God loves everyone always. And for those who do not trust in love, who have given themselves to the hatred of others, love feels like wrath. It hurts. So what Jesus is doing here is he's grieving for those who have fully experienced him, but have still trusted in themselves. Much of Jesus's ministry was carried out in Capernaum. So when he says, woe to Capernaum, he's talking about his hometown, saying, you've heard my teachings and you're still unmoved. The pronouncement of peace is also always a pronouncement of woe because the ways of power, status, cultural identity, political strength, will always fail. They will always fail. So the question today is who do we trust? Do we hear the proclamation of peace? Do we lay our lives down? Let's place ourselves in Naaman's shoes today. How do you see yourself? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see insecurity? Do you say, no matter what I do, I will never be anything because of this leprosy? this size, this shape, this personality quirk that I have, my past, this addiction, I'll never be fully clean. And perhaps like Naaman, we've tried to compensate for this. Well, I'll just make sure people know how good I am at that thing, <laughs> that other thing, right? I'll show up at the prophet's house with chariots. My hope for you today is to know that you are loved just as you are. God is calling you to get in touch with your weakness, to humble yourself, and to surrender to your baptismal identity today. Let's place ourselves in the Galatian shoes. In what ways have we been tempted to separate ourselves from others because of culture or politics? In what ways have we actually dehumanized others as we found our identity in something else other than the cross of Christ? And then finally, let's place ourselves in the shoes of the villagers today. In what ways are we resistant to God's peace? Do we think, yeah, peace is nice and fine, but really this is the way the world works. I gotta take this in my own hands. What do we still cling onto that is not of him? Today, may we hear the message of peace that is also a message of woe. 
May we know deeply the way he has called us into and run after it with all of our hearts. Our prayer of the church today is especially beautiful as it says, grant us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may be devoted to you with our whole heart and united to one another with pure affection. Amen.